We take as our text the words of verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This chapter deals with the concept of love and a phrase that we have repeated, God is love. It's a very popular phrase. It's not a whole verse, but it's a very popular part of a Bible verse. If you were to go into the religious bookshop and you were to look around, I'm sure you'd be able to find stationery or stickers that have that phrase on it. God is love. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, what is our conception of love? What does that mean to many people in the world today. Love is a concept that is so cheapened and so robbed uh, of, its, of its power and its strength. Many don't even know what love is. And as they think of God as love, it becomes simply something in the feelings, maybe romantic feelings or so on. But our verse, verse 10, shows to us what love is. Because John is giving to us the great example of love. In this is love. Do you want to know what love means? Look to this. Not that we loved God. But that God loved us. And gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Before we get to this verse, let's think again about that phrase, God is love. John could have said, God loves. He could have made it a verb. God loves. God loves in many different ways. God does all sorts of actions that show that he loves. That would have been perfectly accurate for God to say that. For John to say that. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't make it a verb. He says instead, God is love. It's not just that God loves That he loves people, that he loves his own people. But it's the fact that in God's essential nature, he is love. Who is God? He is love. He is love. It's part of who he is, part of his nature. If God was not love, God would not be God. From everlasting to everlasting, love is the very essence of God in the Godhead. There is perfect communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They rest in love, in one another's love, in the love of God. God did not need to create this world in order to have an object to set his love on. There was love within the Trinity. God did not a need uh, to, to, to create us in order to show us love. He already had love. He didn't need an object to love. And yet he was willing for his own glory to manifest his love to us. He created in the beginning to show love. To show what was part of the essence of the Godhead. That which was secret, that which was known only 
between Father, Son and Spirit has now been revealed. Revealed in creation. Revealed in the goodness of God shown to this world. Friends, particularly as we think of the fall. The fall into sin provides the black backdrop that allows the glorious display of the essence of God's love to be seen in this world. Without the fall, we wouldn't see just how great God's love is. That which is natural to God, his love, is poured out into our hearts by his Spirit. And we participate in love. Is it any wonder that when Paul speaks of the love of Christ, he says it passes knowledge? It is that divine love, part of his essence, that is poured out to us. It's a wonderful thing. It's a thing beyond words. And yet John tries to show to us here how great this love is. Because he says, in this is love. The first thing I want us to consider is that it's undeserved love. Look at the text again, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God. Don't think that we loved God first. Don't think that there was something that we did that provoked him to love us. It was not for who we were that God loved us. It was not for what we would become that God loved us. It's not for what we shall yet be that God loved us has loved us. No, it's not that we loved God. We did not initiate and he did not reciprocate love. He loved first. That's what it tells us later on in the chapter. We love him because he first loved us. It's undeserved love. Not only because we did not love God, but because we sinned. Against him. If you see at the end of the verse, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, there is a breaking of God's law. There is a falling short of his glory. We have not lived up to his standard. We are unworthy of love. And yet, Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Undeserved love. Not because of any good in us. Not because of any good foreseen in us. In fact, his love has been bestowed unconditionally upon his people. Do we really know the meaning of that? Not that we loved God. How far short of love we fell. In our unconverted state, there was no love for God. It was rather the reverse. We hated God. Isn't that what Romans chapter 1 tells us? Of the unregenerate. It labels them haters of God. It's not just that there's an absence of love. It's not just that they omit to do that which they should do. But it's the fact that there's the very reverse. It's not just that there are no warm feelings for God. It is that there are angry feelings against God. There is enmity between us and God in the natural condition. 
And of course, we know what Jesus says, that no one can serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other. You're devoted to one and you despise the other. You can't serve God and something else. God and man. God and worldly possessions. God and money. God and anything. We can't have God and an idol set up equally. No, you love one and you hate the other. And by nature, is that not how we were? We didn't love God. Not that we loved God. Rather, we loved idols. Rather, we loved the things of this world. That is what we set our affections upon. And therefore, by necessary consequence, we hated God. We hated our Creator. We hated our chief good. We hated the glorious God. The very one that should have been loved by all. Friends, we can't say that in our unconverted state we weren't just we weren't so bad, really. Comparatively, we weren't so bad. Because this text shows to us that we did not love God. And if that is our chief duty, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we failed in the great commandment. We failed in all the commandments. We did not love God. And therefore, the love of God towards us is undeserved by us. But secondly, the love of God is costly love. Because it tells us in the text that he loved us and sent his son. He sent his only begotten son. That's what it says in the verse before. Verse 9, in this the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. That we might live through him. Love costs. It costs you and me to love other people. But how much it costs God to love us. To send his only begotten son. Remember when Abraham had to take Isaac and sacrifice him. Can you imagine fathers... You were required of God to do that, to take your only son and sacrifice him before the Lord. What must you feel to go through that? God sent his only begotten son. There was no one else, no one like him. There was one son and God sent him into the world. It cost the father, but it also cost the son to voluntarily come into this world. Because, of course, although it doesn't explicitly say that in the text, we know that to be the case. The Son loved the Father, and the Son willingly did his Father's will. He came into this world. He came to save sinners. He voluntarily humbled himself to suffer and to die. Think of that for a moment. Think of how within the Trinity, the Son rested in love in the bosom of the father there was perfect love between father son and holy spirit and the son came into our world to what he came to face the rejection of men he came to be despised to be hated mocked spat at struck 
and crucified. In the Trinity, there is perfect love. And yet our Son came into this world to face God-haters and to be crucified by them. He did not love simply by platitudes, mere words, just to say something comforting, how we can do that from time to time. We see someone in need and we say, be warm, be filled, but do nothing to help them. Rather, close our hearts against them. That's not how Jesus loved us. He came into this world to save. He came and he suffered. He suffered in his body and in his soul. Friends, imagine if you were in a room of people and there were some you were acquainted with, some that you didn't know, and some that were your enemies. And imagine if something happened, uh, something that brought danger to them, something that would mean that their lives would be lost, and yet you could do something to save. Who would you save? Would you be willing to save? Would you be willing to save a bare acquaintance? Would you be willing to save your enemy? Someone who had sinned against you? Someone who hated you? Would you be willing to lay down your precious life for their sake? And yet Jesus laid down his life for enemies. Those who were at enmity with him. Those who hated him and despised him and who would reject him. Yet he laid down his life that they would be saved. It cost him. He knew what it would cost him. He knew the justice of God. He knows what holy wrath means. And yet he willingly took it. It was undeserved love. It was costly love. But it was also propitiatory love. That's what it tells us here. It's a big word. I can't, I'm not apologizing for the big word. It's what it says here. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how he loved us. By providing propitiation. It's not a word we use. It's not a word we use just in normal settings. But it's a biblical word. And it's a necessary word because it shows to us the depth of this great love. It has an Old Testament basis in the mercy seat, in the tabernacle and temple where the blood was sprinkled. But very simply, propitiation, it's related to atonement, of course. Atonement for sin. In propitiation, the wrath of God is turned away. From his people. And they are brought in to fellowship with him. Those two sides to it. The, the condemnation and wrath of God. Which comes upon us for sin. Is taken away. It's removed. It's fully satisfied. And then there's a, a new relationship. A warm fellowship. A reconciliation. You see propitiation both removes enmity. And restores fellowship. But friends, even in that, don't we see that propitiation once again speaks of wrath? You see, we, we thought of that. Undeserved love. Not that we loved him. But here we see further, there was wrath upon us. Wrath which needs to be appeased. Wrath which needs to be placated. Wrath that needs to be turned away. And friends, what do we do? How do we turn away anger? 
If you heard that someone was angry with you, what would you do? Well, there are various things we try to do. Perhaps we go to that person and we try to justify ourselves. We don't think it's fair that they're angry with us. We try to defend our actions. Or maybe we go with peace offerings, with little gifts to try to turn their affections towards us. Perhaps if we are kind enough to them, maybe they will forget about their anger and do good to us. But will this work towards God? Will we, can we, satisfy his wrath? Can we turn away his wrath by justifying ourselves? By explaining the reason why we haven't loved him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength? Can you and I really give a reason for our failing to love him? Can we explain away all our sins? There are many sins. There are grievous sins. Do you have a reason that, that, that God hasn't thought of, that he hasn't considered why you should be justified before him? Of course not. There's no reason. There's no reason that you can think of in yourself to justify yourself and to turn away his wrath. We read from Luke 18, we read of the Pharisee, we read of how often he fasted, how often he tithed. We read of all the good that he had done, how he was not like other people. Do you think that washes with God? Do you think he'll justify you for the good things that you have done? It doesn't work. Little peace offerings given to God. A tithe in the offering plate. Attendance at public worship. An act of charity to someone in need. These things are not sufficient to placate the fury of God's wrath. They can do nothing to soften that. We need propitiation. We need a sacrifice that will both turn away God's wrath, take away his enmity, and bring us to him, reconciled to God. And so Jesus is this propitiation. It tells us here that this love of God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He died as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was spotless. Not one sin was found in him. No guilt was on his account. He had nothing to be ashamed of. Even when he was tempted by Satan, he stood resolute. When the temptation came not to go to Jerusalem, what did he do? He set his face as a flint to go to his suffering and to his death. He was spotless, perfect. He fulfilled the divine law. And he was accepted by God as a sacrifice. Just as in the Old Testament, some sacrifices were defiled and they could not be accepted. It was the job of the priest to reject some and say that is not good enough. That, that lamb is, is too old or, or it's got a spot or, or it has a broken bone. and It's not sufficient. Don't offer that to God. Instead, go and get a perfect lamb. For the Lord Jesus was the perfect lamb, accepted by God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not just a little pleased. Not just that I smile at him even though he has a defect. 
Even though he's not quite perfect. No, I'm well pleased. My soul delights in him. Just as I delighted in him in eternity. Father and Son in that spiritual union. Well, now I delight in him in his flesh. As the God-man, I am well pleased with him. And so Jesus willingly became this propitiation to be a substitute, to sacrifice himself in the place of his people, the just for the unjust. And so for those of you who have received him by faith, you can say as Paul did in Galatians 2, Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My friends, I want us to note here that love and propitiation are connected. But we need to get the order right. It's not that Christ's propitiation secures God's love for us. The propitiation does not come before the love, but the love comes before the propitiation. All the more undeserved, isn't it, to think of that. Christ's death on the cross did not win God's love for us. God already loved. He loved in eternity. He set his love upon his people, electing love to predestine them to eternal life. Look at the verse, and you see that quite clearly. In this is love. Not that we love God, but the love is seen that God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is love. In the sending, before the propitiation, there is love in sending him to do this great sacrifice. So friends, what is to be our response? If this is love, if this is the love of God manifested to this world, what is to be the response of all who hear of it? Well, take the words of the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That every one of us here would pray those words. How can you you be converted? How can you become a Christian? What words do you take to the Lord? Well, even just taking those simple words. Isn't that good? Aren't those words necessary? Owning your sin and asking the Lord to have mercy on you. But friends... That text is even more powerful than our English Bible can convey it. Because the word, be merciful, is this same root, propitiation. O Lord, propitiate. Provide a covering. Purge away my sin. Take away the wrath of God due to me for my transgressions. And bring me into fellowship with you. Bring me close to you even though I am a hell-deserving sinner. And so this prayer is the response to the gospel. This prayer is everything you need to respond to the gospel. Not just praying it as rote, but praying it from the heart. To mean these words. If you hear of the spotless Lamb of God who takes away sin, who is the propitiation for our sins, respond in faith like that. Lord, be merciful. Propitiate me. A sinner. It's undeserving love. Undeserved love. It's costly love. It's propitiatory love. 
But then also, finally, it's widespread love. Notice how in the text it says that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Plural. Our. Not just my sins, although we can take that and appropriate to ourselves as individuals. But it's not just for one person's sins. Jesus didn't die one for one. His life for one other person's life. He laid down his life for the many. Uh, Our sins. And if we were to compare that with what John says in chapter 2 and verse 2, we see a very similar thing. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You see, the effects of Christ's propitiation are for the whole world. And when John says this, he doesn't mean uh, the doctrine of universalism, that every single individual has uh, been benefited by the propitiation so that God's wrath is no longer on them and they will all eventually go to heaven. That's the doctrine of the liberal church in this land. That's a doctrine you hear when you go to funerals in various churches. No matter how the person has lived, they've not repented of sin, they've not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have no time for the Lord, and yet what are we assured? We're told they are in heaven. They're looking down on us, they're smiling on us, they're in a better place. Really? Really? What a false gospel. Peace, peace, When there is no peace. Without repentance and without faith. There is no assurance. That that person. That anyone who dies. Is in a better place at all. John here says. That Jesus is the propitiation. Not for our sins only. But also for the whole world. He doesn't mean every single individual. In the world. He doesn't mean that. Every single person is saved ultimately in the end. Rather, I think what John is doing, he's speaking as a Jew. He's saying, Jesus did not just propitiate for our sins, for the Jews, for one people, for the Old Testament people of God. No, his propitiation is for all the world. As we saw recently in heaven, there will be people from all tribes, nations, and languages. The love of God. The overflow of his essential nature of love into this world is not narrow. And it's not bigoted. We as Gentiles are the beneficiaries of it. And so that means that for all of you today there is no reason for you to be excluded from this love and from this propitiation. There's no reason why you should exclude yourself. Because the offer is wide and it's open. Not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Despite the love of God being undeserved, despite it being costly, he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To deal with sin, to deal with the wrath of God. And to bring us into his favour. This is love. This is love. This is what is seen on those stickers. 
and on the items of stationery in religious bookshops. This is love. God is love. Because divine love has been poured out into our hearts, undeserving sinners. How marvellous and how wonderful. May God grant us to be enabled to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Amen. Well, it's my duty now to, to fence the table, which, of course, is words we're familiar with uh, as we come once again to the Lord's Supper, and yet words that are strange uh, to everyday uh, conversation. But simply, as a minister of the gospel, I am to warn uh, those who should not be at the Lord's table to stay away and to seek to encourage those who should be at the Lord's table to come. The text that we looked at there, um, it said, And this is love, not that we loved God. And that's very true. We've seen that the love of God for us, his people, is undeserved. He loved first. And yet we're not to think from that that there is to be no love returned to God. There is. If he loved us... We are to love him in return. Love for God is the necessary fruit of the new birth. It's one of the ways that we show our gratitude to God for what Christ has done in being the propitiation for our sins. It's one of the ways in which we show the genuineness of our faith more precious than gold. The love that we have for God is not the grinds for sitting at this table. The the reason why you may sit here is not because of your love for God. That's our text says this is love not that we loved God. And whilst that is true we can still say however that no one may sit at this table unless they do love God. You must love God. Um, if you don't love God, you're unregenerate. And you are still in your sins. And therefore you have no right to be at this table. You and I who partake of the bread and the wine must love God. But love, of course, is not ethereal. It's not simply something that's in the emotions, although there must be emotions. We do love God. And I know you know this. We love him with our emotions. Nevertheless, it's not simply in the emotions. There must be something more. Something that can be observed objectively. There's a moral dimension to love. And John says this in the next chapter, chapter 5 and verse 2, or verse 3, sorry. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. How do we know who should be at the Lord's table? How do we know who should be fenced in and who should be fenced out? Well, the mark here that John gives us, the love of God, is seen by the keeping of his commandments. It would be inconsistent to profess faith in Christ, to say that you love God, and yet not keep his commandments. So friends, let me ask you, are you trying to obey God's commandments? 
Is that the sincere endeavour of your life to do what he says? Do you want to keep his commandments and do you want to keep them more than you presently keep them? Do you sorrow when you break the commandments because you've sinned against one who has loved you so much? And do you view obedience to God as a burden, as a chore, as drudgery, Or do you take what this text says, his commandments are not burdensome. Because you see that this is for your chief good. You see that this is for the Lord's glory. And there's a freedom and a liberty in walking in God's commandments. Do you love God? It will be seen by your life. It will be seen by how you live. And friends, let me say to you very simply, if you do not love God, do not take this bread and do not take this cup. You actually can do more harm to yourself by taking it than any good you think you might get from it. This is not a superstitious meal. It's not going, if you don't love God, this meal is not going to change you. It's not going to save you. It's simply by eating and drinking, those physical actions. No, rather it can bring Uh, danger and damage to you by eating and drinking unworthily. So if you don't love the Lord, do not let it pass your lips. And yet, friends, if you do love the Lord, your place is at this table. There may be some of you who have not professed faith and therefore you're not at the table. But do you love the Lord? If you do love the Lord because He first loved you, Because Christ has been the propitiation for your sins. If you do love the Lord, then your place is at the table. Of course, for today, it's too late. Because the way we come to the table is by way of going before the session. Because the Lord Jesus has given authority to elders. They have the keys of the kingdom to admit people to the table. The way to come to this table is by way of the session and by taking vows before the Lord. Friends, even though it may be too late at this time, it's not too late to be thinking of the next communion. I'm sure there are some of you here that let a communion season go by. You knew you should have been at the table. You didn't go to the table. You regretted it. And then the next time you went forward. Or maybe you missed many times. Maybe there were many communion seasons that you knew in your heart you should be there at the table and yet you did not go and you missed the blessing from the Lord. Because this meal, whilst it's a commemoration, it's also a seal of Christ's love for us. He whispers in our ear. He gives to us assurance. He lets us feel his love in a special sense. And you know Uh, You you knew you should have been at the table. Learn from the mistakes of those who go before you. And if your place is at this table, then make sure the next time that this is where you find yourself. Love. The love of God for us, seen in Christ's propitiation, is our grounds for coming to this table. But if that is the case, we will return the love to God. And therefore we know, objectively, that we may sit here, for we love God. Those vows I spoke of earlier, I'm just going to read them 
to let you hear once again what they are. It's good for those who have not taken the vows to hear them. It's good for us who have taken the vows to be reminded of what we have pledged to the Lord. By God's grace, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the infallible word of God and the supreme rule of faith and practice? Do you believe that because of your sin, you were under God's just condemnation and in need of salvation, and that Jesus Christ alone has paid the penalty of your sin? Have you, by repentance and faith, received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? And do you promise that, by the help of the Holy Spirit, you will endeavour to forsake sin and live a life consistent with the Word of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord of all, supreme in church and state, and due the obedience of all mankind? Do you promise to submit to the biblical authority of the elders as they encourage you to grow in your love for God and obedience to him, and to be attentive to the word of God, prayer, public worship, the duty of biblical giving, and observing the sacraments. Well, I want us once again as we are now at the Lord's table to consider our text, 1 John 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And there's something there in that that speaks of the completeness and the finality of what the Lord Jesus has accomplished on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is not something that you can have in part. It's not something that you can have half a propitiation. You either are propitiated or not. Propitiation turns away God's wrath fully from the individual. It completely deals with that enmity between God and the individual. And it restores fully the fellowship that there must be. You can't have part of God's wrath removed from you. Jesus did not come simply to dilute God's wrath. We know that the wrath of God against the, uh, the unconverted is furious wrath. That he is a consuming fire and that his wrath would destroy us forevermore. Jesus didn't come simply to make it slightly less sore. He didn't come just to dilute it, to make it manageable, that we can bear a little wrath. Jesus, in his propitiation, removes fully and completely the wrath of God towards you, his people. When he restores us to fellowship, he equally does that fully and completely. He doesn't bring you in and put you on probation to see how it goes, to give you a test for a little time and see if, he, if he'll be pleased with, with how you live. No, he restores you fully into fellowship with him because you can't just have part fellowship with him. By Christ's offering of his body 
and his soul on the altar of the cross. Sin has been decisively dealt with. He has fully satisfied divine justice for us, his people. It is sufficient. It is adequate. He said himself, it is finished. Never will his people taste of his wrath. And yet, friends, what of the sins of our past? What of those sins that haunt us? They come to mind many time and time again of all these things that we have done. Well, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with those sins. Whatever sin in your past that comes and, and maybe says in your mind that I shouldn't be at this table because of this sin or that sin or many sins, grave sins. Friends, believe in the completeness and the finality of Christ's propitiation. It is dealt with and it is finished. But it's not only past sins that his propitiation has dealt with. It's current sins and it's future sins also. Because we continue to sin, don't we? Since the last communion, we have sinned. If the Lord spares us for all the days of our life, we will continue to sin. We will continue to pollute ourselves, our hands and our garments. Do we need a new sacrifice each time we sin? As they did in the Old Testament, they must offer continually sacrifices to God. Is that what we need? Is that what this is that we have here before us? Friends, there's a huge difference between what we do here at this table in commemorating the Lord's death and what the Roman Catholics do at their sacrifice at the Mass. A huge difference. A huge difference. We are remembering a past propitiation, accomplished, finally complete. Roman Catholics reenact the sacrifice. They're continually offering up time and time again because they have their people in a grip, in a bind. You must come to Mass to get new grace from a new sacrifice. There, there can be no salvation just simply relying upon what Jesus did on the cross alone. You must receive grace by drinking and eating once again. A huge difference. In Roman Catholicism, they have a priest, a sacrifice, and an altar because they see it not as a meal of commemoration, but they see it as a sacrifice once again. Friends, I stand here before you as your minister, but not as your priest. I am not in between you and God as a priest. To offer a sacrifice for you. How could I do that? The Old Testament priesthood has been put away. Consider instead the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. This table here is not an altar for Christ to be sacrificed on. This is a table that we are sitting around. I know it's hard with furniture to sit around something, but we're sitting around this table. You're at the table. It's not an altar. You're not watching a sacrifice. This is a table for you to eat and drink a feast that God has provided. The altar of 
Christ was his wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. This bread here is simply bread. It will not change into Christ's body. It represents Christ's body to you and to me. Broken for you. This wine in this cup is not or does not become Christ's blood. It is simply wine to remind us of Christ's blood which is shed for his people for the remission of sins. See, the Roman Catholic doctrine is not only quite wrong, but it's also blasphemous to make the Lord's Supper a sacrifice for sin. You do not need this as a sacrifice. You do not need this to do away with your sin, past, present, or future. What you have needed and have always needed is that that Jesus has already accomplished. The Lord sent him to be the propitiation for our sins. That propitiation is accomplished. Christ is in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice is past. This is a meal. In the past, Christ was made propitiation for our sins. It's blasphemous to think that he is continually being offered for us. And yet, friends, even though the sacrifice was in the past, there is a continued virtue, continued efficacy from the sacrifice. There is still power in it today for you and for me. Jesus having become the propitiation for our sins did not just deal he didn't just deal with the people in his day and their sins for ours 2,000 years afterwards and for as long as the Lord spares this earth he will still be the propitiation for the sins of his people so we sit at this table what sins come to your mind what sins have you committed? How have you failed your Lord? Well, friends, believe that in the sacrifice on the cross, the debt has been paid in full. There's nothing left over for you. There's no wrath of God that will spill out over for you to take because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. It is finished. Do you believe that Christ, by his sacrifice, has propitiated you to God? You're restored to favour. And that means now as we come to this table, it is right that we may fellowship with God. He invites you to his table to sit with him, to share with him, and to eat and to drink and to rejoice in his love. God is love. And we're eating and drinking a token of that. This is love that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a token of it. It's a reminder of it, isn't it? And as we eat and drink, 
we may do so in full fellowship and in close communion. We'll read from the words of institution in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take, eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. We seek to follow the Lord's own pattern, that's why we read these words of institution. Christ instituted the sacrament, and we follow him. So we see that the Lord took bread and he gave thanks. And so we will return thanks to the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we give you thanks before our meals. Thank you that you have provided our physical food to nourish our bodily needs, to provide for us. O Lord our God, we give you thanks because we know that all good and perfect gifts come from you. Lord, as we come to thank you for this meal, we are not primarily focused on the physical food that we eat and drink, but we're thankful for what it represents, to rejoice in Christ Jesus, made the propitiation for our sins. O oh Lord our God, how undeserving we are, how wretched we may feel within ourselves, for our manifold sins against you. And yet, what love! Pour out the love of God in our hearts to send your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. O Lord our God, we ask that as we eat and drink that we would do so to your glory that you would meet with us in our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would seal 
on our hearts. You would give us signs of your love for us to provoke assurance and the fruit of the Spirit. Use this meal to strengthen not our bodies, but to strengthen our souls, that we might live more for your glory. May we eat and drink with true thankfulness. May we eat and drink with true love for one another. And so, Lord, as we do this, we pray that you would set aside this portion, not uh, set it aside from a common use to a sacramental use, but it would be used by you to achieve the purposes for which you send it, and that you would be magnified in our midst at this table. Hear us and answer us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and having given thanks as we have done, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This eat in remembrance of me. want us just for a few moments to return to our text again and to remember that every text is in a context why did John write about Christ being the propitiation for our sins why did he want to show us what divine love is poured out in that example the context shows us 1 John 4 verse 7 he says beloved let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And again, at the end, at verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, that is, by sending his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, if he so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's the context. John could have easily written about propitiation just to teach us the doctrine and to make us thankful for it. He could have written about the doctrine of God's love to thrill our hearts, to help us contemplate that incomprehensible love of God. But he didn't do it for those reasons alone. He did it to instruct you and me that we would love one another. When we take communion, there's not just a vertical dimension to it, there's also a horizontal dimension. We are communing with God by the Spirit. We are in fellowship with Him. He is speaking to us. He seals His love to us in this meal. It's a spiritual feast. That's true. But there's also a communion uh, horizontally between us as we pass the bread to one another. So we hand the cup one to the other. We're all participating together in this feast. In the early church, they talked about their love feasts. And whether the love feast was itself this feast, or whether it was an accompanying meal, you know, where, where God's people would gather together in each other's homes and eat and drink after services, but we can't be fully sure. But nevertheless, it's interesting that they were noted for their love feasts. Love burned within them. Not simply love for God, but love for one another. 
we have thought of God's love for us, the richness of it in Christ Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. How do we respond to that? Well, one way we respond is by loving one another and by endeavouring to love one another all the more, more than we have heretofore. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaks about the last day when the sheep are separated from the goats. And it's interesting to think on, on what basis are they separated from one another? How does Jesus note that this one is a sheep and that one is a goat? Well, he, said, he tells them himself, for, for I was hungry, and you, the sheep, you gave me food. I was, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And you remember the scene there. It's almost a protest. <clears throat> we don't understand this. When did we do all these things for you? We've never seen Jesus hungry or thirsty or naked or a stranger or sick or in prison. And yet he says, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these brethren, you did it to me. We've thought of Christ's love for us that complete, perfect propitiation of sins. No longer do those past sins haunt us. Future sins also are paid for. Friends, hearing of that, you would do anything for Christ, wouldn't you? Well, he tells you, love one another. That's how he wants us to respond. That's what John tells us here. If God so loved us, well, then we ought to love one another. It's a duty. It's a commandment. It's an old commandment, John says. It's also a renewed commandment to love one another. But it's not merely a commandment. It's also our great privilege. And it is, of course, the most natural thing for someone born of God to love others born of God. Isn't that what it tells us? It tells us everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the point John wants to get across to us. Yes, marvel at the propitiation for our sins. Rejoice afresh in the richness of Christ's love. But don't forget to respond to it practically by going out from here loving one another because when you love even the least of the saints even one of the least on earth you are actually loving Jesus you are doing it for him and for his sake may the Lord help us to love one another Amen we'll close by singing from Psalm 133 Psalm 133 Behold, how good a thing it is, and how becoming well, 
to gather such as brethren are in unity to dress, like precious ointment on the head that down the beard did flow, even Aaron's beard, and to the skirts did of his garments go, as Hermon's Jew, the Jew that doth on Zion hills descend, for there the blessing God commands, life that shall never end. These words we sing to God's grace. Let's stand and sing. <coughs>